So, you know, now that I am in my mid-70s, I sort of get this idea that, you know, I've had a great life. I've enjoyed things by and large. I'm satisfied with what's been done. We do have people to inherit it. We do have the sense of a legacy. The comfort food, though, is a great glass of wine, great people to be around. I love great people. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking over Zoom with Tom Butterfield, founder of Masterworks Museum of Bermuda Art, currently in London. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast is sponsored by my Sweet Blast series of photographs. I created the series with images such as Ready Pop, High Stakes, and Cucagedon with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to connect with the world. Let's talk a little bit about your support of the arts in Bermuda. And I know that you've built a museum. I've actually visited your museum a few years ago. It's really become a must-see art spot on the island for any art-loving people who are visiting Bermuda, as well as for the locals. When did you first start developing your interest in art? The interest in art goes back to the early 1970s. And when the fog from the 60s uh, cleared, (laughs) I had a very clear idea of what it was that I wanted to do. I went off to university and delved into uh, photography. And when I was at photography uh, school or university in Toronto, I developed a course for handicapped children who were in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And we set up uh, cameras on tripods and then took them to the park and took them to the zoo and took them other places back into their little facility. And we developed prints and it just changed their whole disposition and their their hope about life. And it was a real learning curve about the impact of art, in this case, photography, of what it had on some people. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't lost to me that when I went back to Bermuda and there was just this dearth of access to a thing, what I call culture, whether it's in the form of history, whether it's in the form of art of any form, you know, including food uh, and other items. We just needed to do a a little bit more. That was my set. We're starting about four years after I got back to the island. Took another three to sort of Mm -hmm. formulate it and create a charity and a trust and then get going. Your whole notion coming to the idea of sustainability and sort of the sense of the spirit, your whole idea was to get people through the doors and have a feel-good kind of an environment without having them cost a lot, without having to, you know, consume uh, things. And that's how it got started. And, you know, Bermuda's population, I was well aware of the imbalance of what was going on on the island. In other words, most of the economies and most of the things that for activities, other than sport, was all geared to white people. And they represented only 30% of the population. 70% of black was effectively being left out of the restaurants, the bars, activities at the hotels, not nightclubs so much, sort of mostly black nightclubs and mostly white nightclubs, and very little uh, mixing in between. Mm. So I just felt that a gallery could uh, provide that mix, and it has done just exactly that. Uh, today, our employees represent the dynamic of Bermuda's population. We are 70% black employees and 30% white, which is terrific, which is the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. 
Let's talk a little bit about the collection at Masterworks. When I went in there, at that point, there was a huge exhibit that was about advertising for tourism specifically that was amazing to me, looking at the evolution of travel posters and things of that nature. But you also have all kinds of other pieces in there from Wyeth and from Georgia O'Keeffe and uh, Josef Karsh. What were you looking for as you began developing the collection? I was looking for anything that had some kind of a study about the muse of Bermuda as a source of inspiration. Mm. So again, when we started, it really focused in on painting and photography. But that did not mean that once we set up the museum, that we were going to not rapidly include music, writing, Mm. books, the list goes on. So that, you know, if I could get, for instance, Irving Berlin's piano that he brought to Bermuda (laughs) in 1933 and sat down and started to pen Easter Parade, although it's set in New York, he was inspired by this Easter Parade in Bermuda where they make these floats out of flowers and they decorate their hats Mm -hmm. and all the rest of that sort of stuff. That's where he took his inspiration from. Oh, wow. And that to me is all history. That stuff that we as Bermudians uh, need to know about. Yeah. So the island may be 21 square miles in landmass, but in terms of its source of inspiration, it's been much, much bigger than that. And that's the thing that I enjoy the most, is that sort of search for the yeah. unknown. And in fact, one of the shows that's over here now is called Alice Curiouser and Curiouser. And so I went to see this Alice in Wonderland exhibition. It washed over me. That's sort of what we had done. We were creating an Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and I think I know the show that you're alluding to. It was called Mystery marketing mythology and mayhem yes because there's this dichotomy of bermuda the bucolic and then the bermuda triangle and the whole idea of the show was to create that tension between the two yes the mythology that exists you know do you live in this place called paradise or do you live in this place called hell (laughs) uh, known as the bermuda triangle and it comes out that we live in a place called paradise. Yes. And I think the show clearly exhibited that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I was down there, I actually had the opportunity to do a walking tour with a local photographer. He took us on the back paths, basically, of Bermuda. So we got to see both the, the backside of the beautiful mansions, but he also showed us some farmers' places and some of the plantation things where the food is coming from in a lot of cases and where I think we ended up at some kind of a sheep farm or something like that where it was overlooking the bluffs and it was just absolutely amazing but it really showed two sides of Bermuda. There's a guy called Tom Watson who's a farmer on the island who is trying to educate Bermuda about sustainable farming Mm. and Bermuda is becoming increasingly aware no matter how small the plot of land that we could grow uh, things on those small plots to become somewhat less dependent on outside produce. Now, we would never be able to feed ourselves uh, 365 days of the year, but we could do a lot better at using some open spaces. But in Bermuda, you can grow things virtually all year round. Wow. One of the things that was fascinating to me during my tour of Bermuda was that you guys don't have spring water. You guys don't have aquifers. All the fresh water that's on there is water that's reclaimed from rain. So you end up with the cisterns underneath houses and the roofs are created in such a way so that they're actually capturing the rainwater. The ultimate irony is that when Bermuda was settled in 1612, it only took eight years for these very ingenious settlers to figure out how to move from a thatched roof. They gathered uh, water in, the, uh, in wooden barrels and, and uh, had some drinking water. 
It took them only a few years to create this idea that you could get some slate and then pipe it down into a cistern. That's right. Mm. Bermuda was the lesson for mankind about sustainability. We gathered our own water, do our own fishing, we farmed the land. We were completely self-sustaining. It's ironic that because of overpopulation and consumption that we've just gone the other way. We've also, by the way, because there were a few artesian wells from rainwater on the island, we've polluted most of them now. Oh, no. So that all our fresh water, when we need it in bulk, like for the hospitals, the hotels, or some other large facility, all of that is through osmosis now, from you taking salt water and converting it into fresh. Oh, wow. Before you began the museum... You practiced photography in Toronto and then kind of put the career on hold for a few years to build this collection. And now you're back with a camera in your hands. You just had a show called Bermuda in Another World, A Photographer's View. What was that show about? That show was about the very thing that your photographer friend showed you, the other side of the island, the other side of paradise. And often I find myself and other people do too trespassing on land that does not belong to me. I find it very tragic that Bermuda's homes are labor-intensive. You take a chunk of hillside and you cut slate. And then from that big slab, you cut blocks of stone. Mm -hmm. And those blocks of stone, each one weighing in excess of 60 pounds, brought onto traditionally a donkey cart and then moved to its location. And then from that donkey cart, it was then placed on the ground Mm -hmm. and then put into blocks until ready. And then it was moved again to start building the house. Oh, my gosh. Then you felled a a cedar tree so that you could build your joists and your roofs. And then you put slate on top of it. Now what you see are these beautiful old homes with the skill of sailors just in deterioration. And you think, isn't this sad? We're letting these wonderful monuments of our history and our culture just erode in front of us. Mm. And so often, as I said, you know, I've been, you know, on people's land. They say, what are you doing here? So when I explain why I'm making the photograph, we end up on the right side of the conversation. Okay. Because these houses should be saved rather than bulldozed down, only to be made landfill out of the airport. Mm, absolutely. So let's save what we've already taken down from the hillsides and not destroy it is my is my thought you look at bermuda's homes and they have withstood 300 years of hurricanes and they have not once come crumbling down <laughs> because a wind force of 150 miles an hour oh decided to take them down yeah. they're, they're that oh wow they're beautifully built you can't do that with a cinder block building no were you shooting throughout your time that you were building the museum or is this a new project that you're tackling i had to put my love and passion of photography on one side because my love and passion for what i had thought about was even greater at the time. Mm. The idea that we could bring people together through art really just washed over me big time. And I thought, this is really where I'm going to put my energies and all of it. So, you know, it was one of those spiritual things that you realize you've got education to deal with, you've got membership Mm. to deal with, you've got fundraising to try and hire people to deal with, you've got funding to build a building and on and on. You know, because my name is not DuPont (laughs) or Dr. Barnes. I mean, if it were, on one hand, it might have made it easier. But on the other hand, it might not have brought so many people in to the source of what we were doing so early on because people got behind it in big numbers at the outset, yeah. which I was happy about. <laughs> I had to run some marathons and do that so that people could sponsor me at a, at a dime a mile. <laughs> You're talking literally running marathons. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So somebody would pay me $2.50 because they didn't really understand the charity. Mm. But that morphed into you know 8000 from my first marathon to 15 then to 50 
And then when I did the bike rides, it was morphing into $250,000 a bike ride. Oh, wow. It paid off. Yeah. It It was a nice approach. What drives you to want to build these communities like this? Because obviously you're motivating a whole population to get involved in this. I think what the motivating factor behind it all was really this idea that it had not been tackled. Mm. And just as I learned about this guy, Brunel, who built this tunnel under the Thames, and it's the first underwater tunnel in the world, it became kind of a yes, I can motivation. And so there were detractors who said, you will never build it. It will never happen. We don't want it. So there was that side of it. So you think, wait a second. I'm determined to make it happen. I think it can happen. It will happen. Cool. There's always naysayers and always people who are afraid of change. And here's one of the key factors. I love doing this, particularly to Americans, because the man that I'm about to talk about is American. And he became a Bermudian in 1975. And so when we're doing a tour, because his body of work is now in, found in our collection, because he qualifies as a Bermudian, I have said, does anybody know of the name Arthur Rankin? And it draws a blank, invariably. One or two might say, oh, uh, yes, but they are in the minority. Mm. And I said, have you ever heard of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty Oh, Zoom God, it? seriously. Everybody go, hey, you know, yeah. the Arthur Rankin created those, my source of inspiration at, at the outset. Because he, a creator, much smarter than I ever hoped to be, (laughs) he was the inspiration. On Sunday afternoons, we'd go over and drink wine, and I would talk about the ideas, and he would just say, do it, Tom, do it, do it, let's do it, let's do it. You know, that meant a lot to have a friend as a source. He didn't dig into his pocket and say, here's a zillion bucks. He just said, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it. So having that on the side, it was a big motivator. Near his end, forgive the expletive, because this was his word, not mine. Hmm. He said, you know, Tom, what I admire about you? You just didn't give us. <laughs> you wanted to get it done. Yeah. I was not about to allow the naysayers. They got under my skin, but I was not allowed that to defeat me. Because in a small community, you can be judged very quickly. You know, oh, yeah. a population of 60,000. And the moment you put your head above the wall, you become fodder for the firearms. If you had one secret that you could pass on back to yourself back in the day, perhaps even back when you were first starting this thing, a secret that we can actually share with other people who might be struggling to put together a community like this, what would you pass on to these people? What would you pass on to yourself back then? If you think that this is a good idea, and if you think that society stands to benefit from it, Mm -hmm. then believe in yourself and go out and do it. It may have the sort of the counter and Rand kind of philosophy to it. In other words, sometimes I sort of thought of myself as being the ultimate altruist. But in the end, I realized, no, I was the ultimate spirited person, just taking a deep look at myself and saying, you're going to do this. You are going to do it. Because I did believe that we were doing good for good and for the good. In other words, for the benefit of future generations and to see The average age of our employees now are half my age, minus 10. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They've got the energy for it, that's for sure. Yeah, my son actually coined a phrase. Well, I don't know if he coined the phrase. I was asking him about something he was doing, and he said he was doing it for enlightened self-interest. He felt that this was going to benefit somebody else, which meant that it was also going to benefit him in the end. So therefore, it was a good idea to go forward with. 
I think you've already kind of defined what your legacy is, certainly with the museum and with your return back to photography, I'm sure. What are you hoping your legacy is going to be? I am hoping that the legacy will be, A, like to be remembered. There's no doubt about that. I would like to be sort of remembered as somebody who was a unifier between people, Mm. a unifier between race and class and education and all the things that so commonly divide us. Mm. One of the things that I love about art, unlike the written word, when you have the written word, you need a translator. Even when you have music that has words to it, again, you need a translator. But art, visual arts in its purest form, like dance in its purest form, doesn't need any translator. It is an immediate response. You know, it doesn't matter how enlightened or educated one is in the field of art. Mm -hmm. The response is always in your gut. I like it or I don't like it. And if you like it, then you respond to it and you want to know more about it and you ask questions. If you don't like it, you move on to the next one. And one of the things in terms of the whole collecting, by the way, I made sure, and this does fall into your son's well-phrased mantra, When we were collecting, I made sure that those interpretations of the island didn't reflect a personal interest. That was important. If they did, it would be very singular in what is appealing. In other words, it appeals to me. So we immediately found some abstract work, some portraits, almost like Francis Bacon. Mm. We found all sorts of works that were sort of outside the realm of what people would put in their living rooms. There was some discomfort at looking at it, but then there was always that challenge when someone would ask about it. I would say, here's why we do it. Let's have a look and let's have a discussion about the work. And that sets up a good conversation. Absolutely. Because it gets people outside their comfort zone. Because it was very uncomfortable to the establishment, challenged them from the outset. We were renegades and we knew it and we loved it. (laughs) I remember it was during the 80s when inflation and interest rates were very high. So at one point, we started it at the wrong time. At the other point is we started at the right time because artworks were down low. Mm. But I remember our loan with the bank was pretty high and getting a little higher Mm. as we were trying to achieve these goals. And this guy said, is there anything the bank could do? I said, yeah, you know what would be really wonderful? If you could just take the interest rate down and give us a little bit of a break. He said, well, Mr. Bonnerfield, we have. You, the interest rate is normally 8%. We're just charging you 7 Nice. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I said, would you do me a favor? Put that 1% back on. I don't want a favor of 1%. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be writing a long book because there are so many things in the chapter to tell you. Look forward to seeing that for sure. Yeah. A question that occurred to me is, what is your definition of art? That is such a biggie that I don't Mm. know that I really have clearly defined it in a sentence or a paragraph. That, too, probably be part of the book because I need to really kind of get outside because I am a bit of a traditionalist. You know, when you look at African art and African sense, and I'm talking about not African-American, you look at their color palette, it is entirely different in the West. If we were to start judging our palettes based on that, then we won't get anywhere. You have to broaden people's background. There's an abstract work done by a Bermudian who was born in Pittsburgh, has a Bermudian father. The work is very abstracted and it alludes to slavery and the Middle Passage and the crossing. Mm -hmm. And you look at it and you get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now, most people would look at that and say, that's not art. That's not art because it's so socio-political. 
But, you know, you have to distance yourself from that because, again, his experience is different than that of mine. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is my definition of art? I suppose anything that is executed well where the medium is not interrupted by bad uh, method and that one can start to read into the message. Okay. You know, coming back to O'Keefe, and often people would say, oh, you've got some O'Keefe's, and they're expecting the big flowers or the skulls and other things that, that we're more familiar with. Yeah. The works that we have are drawings and one charcoal. Her craftsmanship is extraordinary. Again, there's no interruption at looking at the artwork. You can see the intent of what she is trying to say what she is trying to evoke on that piece of paper, what she's trying to send to you, the viewer. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. At the end of the day, fundraising or going on a bike ride to raise money or going out and photographing in the field, what is your comfort food? First of all, my comfort food is probably liquid. So when someone says, uh, Tom, you need some fruit. I say, yeah, I've got it. It's in a glass. It's cold grape made into wine. That's my comfort food. <laughs> enough, that, that's an interesting one. I like that. And now that I am in my mid-70s, I sort of get this idea that, you know, I've had a great life. I've enjoyed things by and large. I'm satisfied with what's been done. We do have people to inherit it. We do have the sense of a legacy. Mm-hmm. The comfort food, though, is a great glass of wine, great people to be around. I love great people. And so that is a comfort food as well. The comfort food being that of the spirit. Yes. Is there anything that we did not cover that you would like to cover? The real question is, do I think that the museum is sustainable? Yeah. That's the real question. And my answer has always been and will always be that as long as Bermuda is sustainable, the museum is sustainable. It's a matter of whether you as board members and staff have enough belief in your facility to understand that it's a challenge out there. People are not just going to give you money because you have a stamp on your head that says Masterworks Museum. It doesn't work like that. With a sense of humility and pride, say, I need your help. And it will come. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest is Tom Butterfield, photographic artist and founder of Masterworks Museum of Art in Bermuda. You can find him at masterworksbermuda.org. Share this link with your friends and tag me so I can give you a shout out on social media. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. This episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, is recorded by me with consulting help from Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, and editing by myself and Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation. Just a really quick note before your auto feed refreshes to the next episode in your queue. If you've enjoyed the show, maybe you picked up a new tip or a concept, there are a couple ways you can help us keep grading it. Click on the link at the bottom of the show notes for buymeacoffee.com slash Matt McKee. Coffee is life around here. Also in the show notes is a link to theartofmattmckee.com where you can browse art from my Sweet Blast, Promethean Dreams, and Tool series of portfolios, as well as others. Get some art for that special someone in your life. And if that special someone is you, don't feel guilty. It should go without saying, you deserve nice things too. And last but certainly not least, share this episode with your friends on social media. Let them know you enjoyed it. 
and then you can start your own conversation. Thanks. <laughs>